Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And in this crazy mixed-up period of the year, it's always confusing with films getting released on Boxing Day, films getting released on New Year's Day, and add that to the fact that we're seemingly heading towards another lockdown or at least we should be but the idiot government is so scared of actually saying we need to go into a lockdown that they're probably not going to do it despite the fact that apparently they were having several christmas parties last year where everybody else was suffering but anyway that's an entirely separate matter it's a strange time of year in the best of circumstances And this has turned into a strange show. I did want to release a show at this time of year, just before New Year's, when a whole new slew of films is going to be coming out. But it's turned into a rather odd collection of reviews. There's only one cinematic film in this particular show. Ideally, there would have been two. But the other cinematic film that was released in the period between Boxing Day and New Year's Day that I was interested in reviewing, which is not The Matrix Resurrections, was a film called The Humans, a film based on a popular American play where an estranged family gathers in a crumbling New York apartment to celebrate Thanksgiving. But... The only cinema which was showing it was the Watershed Cinema over in Bristol, which made the decision to shut in the period between Christmas and New Year's, the time period when The Humans was on the schedule. It's going to be reopening in the new year, but The Humans is not back on the schedule, so looks like I'm just going to have to wait for that to come cheaper on streaming platforms, because At time of recording, it's only available at a premium price on Curzon Home Cinema. So that's been put on the back burner, alongside another streaming film, which I'm eagerly waiting for nine days. But all this means that the only cinematic film I saw in this post-Christmas period is something of a blockbuster in The King's Man, the spin-off slash prequel to the Kingsman franchise. So that's in this review, as well as several Netflix films. The first of which is the heavyweight Oscar contender The Power of the Dog, which at time of recording is the favourite in several Oscar categories, including Best Picture. But alongside that, we also have some cheesy Christmas rom-coms released onto Netflix, because 
What else are you going to do on Christmas Day afternoon and Boxing Day afternoon? With nothing better to do and with the cooking going away in the kitchen, what better time to watch some cheesy Christmas movies? So that's what we did. And on Christmas Day and Boxing Day, I did manage to watch the queer Christmas rom-com single All The Way, the catfishing Christmas rom-com Love Hard, and the mature Christmas rom-com... Actually, that sounds wrong. I mean, the rom-com with mature protagonists, A Castle for Christmas. So, an odd blending of the blockbuster, the Oscar-baity, and the cheesy, but that's how things have ended up. And that is the lineup for this particular episode. So, without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Big screen. The King's Man is a spin off slash prequel to the Kingsman franchise based on the comic books by Mark Miller and directed by Matthew Vaughan. Matthew Vaughan started out as a producer of Guy Ritchie's films like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch, but used that leg up in the movie industry and also the money he has, thanks to the fact he's married to Claudia Schiffer, to found his own production company and start making his own films as director. He started out in a similar wide boy gangster milieu that he did with Lockstock in his first directorial effort, Lair Cake, but since then has gone into more genre-heavy attitudes, adapting Neil Gaiman in Stardust, and then Mark Miller in both Kick-Ass and Kingsman, and along the way he also did an X-Men film. So the majority of Matthew Vaughan's material has been adapting Mark Miller's comic books. And I think it's worth, at this point, reflecting upon Mark Miller, because I've come to realise that my shifting attitudes towards Mark Miller is a signpost of how old I'm getting, and if you want to put it in those terms, how my maturity has increased. When I first saw Kick-Ass, I loved it. It was one of my top five films the year it came out. I loved the idea of having a real-life superhero. I loved the idea of the hyper-stylized action and violence that Mark Miller put in the original comic book and that Matthew Vaughan did in the film adaptation. I really loved it. But then, the next year, Super came out. The film that James Gunn directed, which basically got him the Guardians of the Galaxy gig. Rain Wilson as a man who dresses up as a superhero and simply hits people over the head with a wrench. And there's some weird sexual fetish stuff going on with Elliot Page in that film as well. So yeah, I mean, that almost instantly made me reevaluate Kick-Ass. And particularly when the Kick-Ass sequel came out, I became less and less enamoured of the way that Mark Miller writes comic books. I mean, when 
he's not working for one of the major companies. I mean, he is a fantastic comic book writer. I mean, he wrote Civil War, one of the pivotal miniseries in recent Marvel history. He wrote Old Man Logan, which got turned into the film Logan. I mean, he is an excellent, excellent comic book writer. But when Mark Miller is not writing for one of the major companies, he tends to get a little excessive. There are certain things in the comic book Wanted, which eventually got turned into a film starring James McAvoy and Angelina Jolie. And honestly, I really, really like the film Wanted. It's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine, but it's got very, very little in common with the comic book Wanted, which I have actually read. And I've also read not only Kick-Ass, but also the sequel to Kick-Ass, which eventually got turned into a sequel film as well. And in both the comic book Wanted and the comic book sequel to Kick-Ass, there is some very, very problematic stuff in there, and particularly some misogynistic stuff in there. There's a case of fridging in Kick-Ass 2, which is totally unnecessary and pretty excessive. And there's also some very excessive stuff in the comic book Wanted as well. So I think Mark Miller has a problem with women, and my tolerance for that has diminished as time has gone on. As I said, I really, really loved Kick-Ass when it first came out, but my affection for it has diminished over the years. I really, really loved both of the previous Kingsman films when they came out, but again, my affection for them has diminished over the years, particularly in the second film, where there's, again, what I perceive as some unnecessary misogyny when a tracker needs to be put on a woman, and of course the only place that this tracker can be put is in an intimate area. Why? That's completely unnecessary and brings up uncomfortable situations. So there is some misogynistic stuff, some sexist stuff, and also some ultra-hyper-violence and very stylized violence. And my tolerance for that has diminished somewhat, but with the caveats that it's got some very uncomfortable sexual stuff in both of the Kingsman films... I do still basically like both Kingsman films, and I was intrigued when I saw this prequel film was coming up, which delves into the history of the Kingsman organisation, and basically how it got founded. I mean, this is an origin story for the organisation, the Kingsman. And I was intrigued by that. So I did go along to see it. And after a prologue which happens in South Africa in 1902, which I will be coming back to in a minute, the film really picks up, it's around 1914, where the Earl of Oxford, played by Rafe Fiennes, is a militant and committed pacifist who can see that the world is gradually inching ever closer to war. A war that he does not want his teenage son, Harris Dickinson, to go to. So he makes it his mission that his son shall not go to the war, which is obviously just over the horizon. 
This is something which is deeply, deeply resented by Harris Dickinson. And when an opportunity comes from his cousin in Russia to go to Russia and try and prevent the malign influence of Rasputin on the Russian Tsar, a Rasputin played by Reese Ifans, Harris Dickinson decides, right, I'm going to Russia, I'm going to try and solve this, and realising that he can't really prevent his son from going to Russia on this mission with his Russian cousin, Ray Fiennes reluctantly initiates Harris Dickinson into the secret which is going on just underneath the surface in this country estate, where Rafe finds, alongside his manservant, Jimon Hunsu, and the no-nonsense northern nanny, played by Gemma Arterton, have set up a clandestine information-gathering organisation which will eventually turn into the Kingsman. And with this organisation in the background, they all travel to Russia in order to try and stop Rasputin, but unbeknownst to them, there is some world-spanning conspiracies going on, and there is one malign figure behind the whole thing. So can they prevent World War I from starting? And once it inevitably does start, can they prevent it getting any worse? And can they try and get America into the war? and swing the balance of power against the Kaiser? And will the Kingsman organisation work in the background to prevent this kind of thing happening in the future? So similarly to the first two Kingsman films, this is hyper-violent, hyper-stylized, very sweary. This is a hard R rating. It's got decapitations, it's got violence, it's got war. Actually, there's not a great deal of sex in this particular film, but it's definitely over the top and perhaps going over the line in certain places. It does have that thing that Matthew Vaughan likes to do of having sweeping, highly choreographed fight scenes where the camera's just rotating around people doing these balletic moves. I mean, there's a sword fight between Rasputin, Resifans, and the Earl of Oxford, Ray Fiennes, which is made to look like one of those Russian sword dances. I'm sure you've seen the kind of thing, but it specifically evokes that kind of thing. And it's done its really hyper-stylized, balletic way. And it's really, really cool stuff. And that's kind of what I was expecting from the Kingsman franchise. But what I didn't necessarily expect is the historical accuracy of this film. As I said, this film opens in 1902 in South Africa during the Boer War, where Ray Fiennes and his wife and his young son are travelling to a concentration camp run by Lord Kitchener, played by Charles Dance, where Boer prisoners are being kept in 
the middle of the plains in South Africa in the baking heat and people are dying. And this is historically accurate. This is what the British Empire did. The first time that concentration camps were used was by the British in the Boer War. And this is a film that takes the time to point that out. When we eventually do have the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, the way that went down is historically accurate. The fact that the driver essentially made a wrong turning and it was only blind luck that Gavrilo Princip was in the right place at the right time after his first attempt had failed. That is historically accurate. The interpersonal relationships between the three leaders, the three cousins who were all grandsons of Queen Victoria, King George in England, Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany, and Tsar Nicholas in Russia, who are all being played by Tom Holland with slightly different beards, which I think was a nice touch. But the interpersonal relationships between those three are accurate, including the fact that Kaiser Wilhelm had a withered right arm, which was one of the reasons why he was so gung-ho about going to war. It is surprisingly historically accurate when it doesn't need to be. It doesn't maintain itself all the way through. I mean, the characterizations of both Matahari and President Woodrow Wilson are not exactly historically accurate, but in general, the historical details of this film are right, which really, really surprised me, because it honestly didn't need to be, because what we are here for is the hyper-stylized balletic violence, and we get that in spades. We do get decapitations, we do get snipers taking out people with blood spurting everywhere it's got that highly choreographed style to it and it is pretty well done and also in common with other kingsman films we've had in the past the previous two kingsman films we've had in the past certain major characters don't make it all the way to the end and it is a genuinely shocking moment when, oh shit, they're doing that, and it happens. So it has that stylized, over-the-top approach with a surprising amount of historical accuracy. And I find it a little bit interesting that essentially the argument of this film is that World War I started for the sake of Scottish independence. Now, I don't believe that this film is directly adapted from one of the original comic books, but Mark Miller is Scottish, so maybe he wouldn't be too upset if the idea of Scottish independence got put into a major film like this. But, yeah, it, it does have those over-the-top elements alongside the historical accuracy. Although in certain places, this historical accuracy goes a little bit too far. There is a lengthy sequence where basically the entire poem, Dolce et Decorum Est, by Wilfred Owen, is recited. And as it starts, 
it seems to be trying to make the argument that Dolce et Decorum Est is a pro-war poem, which it absolutely categorically is not. And it's also problematic that it's in this film at all, because that poem is being recited when I'm pretty sure the year is 1916. Dolce et Decorum Est was not published until 1920. And it was not popularised, it did not enter the literature canon until the 1960s, where two anthologies, one edited by Brian Gardner in 1964 and one edited by Ian Parsons in 1965, included war poets like Wilfred Owens into the canon. So that poem had not been published and it had not been popularised in 1916. Nobody would know what that poem was until at least 1964. So, yeah, that's uh, a little bit unnecessary and it doesn't reflect the true historical accuracy because, like I said, most of what is in this film is historically accurate, uh, apart from the Wilfred Owen poem and the fact that Woodrow Wilson is presented as a philanderer and that is a major plot point and that isn't the case. I mean, yes. He did have a basically lifelong mistress through both of his marriages, but it seems to be more about intellectual companionship than sex, so who knows. But yeah, the representation of Woodrow Wilson is a little bit off, and nobody would know who that poem by Wilfred Owen. But other than that, the historical accuracy is surprisingly good. So yeah. Mark Miller is excessive. Matthew Vaughan tends to be excessive. But they're usually fun. And I think, on its own terms, The King's Man is fun. I did enjoy myself. I was pleasantly surprised by the accuracy of it. And it does have the balletic violence and the over-the-line comments and the decapitations and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, on its own terms, I really, really enjoyed myself watching The King's Man. It is currently available cinematically, and for me, on its own terms, The King's Man is a yay. Netflix and chill. The Power of the Dog is the latest film from Jane Campion, who I hadn't realised just how long it's been since we've had a feature film from Jane Campion. Her last feature film was Bright Star in 2009. So 12 years after the last time she's directed a feature film, she has come back. I mean, to be fair, in that time period, she has made two series of the excellent Elizabeth Moss starring TV show Top of the Lake. But still, to not make a feature film for 12 years, that's quite something. And boy howdy did she make an impression when she came back. This film, The Power of the Dog, premiered at the Venice Film Festival, where it won Best Director for Jane Campion and was also nominated for The Golden Lion for Best Picture and also The Queer Lion, which honestly I think is stretching things a little bit. But either way, she did win Best Director at the Venice Film Festival, and 
the power of the dog instantly became the front runner to win not only best picture at the forthcoming oscars but also best director for jane campion and even adapted screenplay for jane campion as well imagine if that happened imagine if jane campion won best director and we had a female winner two years in a row that would be quite something and there's every chance of it happening because this is a heavyweight oscar contender and as is somewhat common nowadays it has ended up on netflix this is an adaptation of a novel by thomas savage and takes place in montana in the 1920s where two brothers, Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons, run a ranch in the middle of Montana. Benedict Cumberbatch is very much an alpha personality. He is charismatic, he is cruel, he is domineering. What he says goes, but he is very determined that his brother stay by his side even as adults, they are sharing a room in this ranch house in the middle of Montana. And he is also obsessed with the person who taught him the ropes, I mean, literally taught him the ropes when he was a youth, Bronco Henry. And the memory, even the ghost of Bronco Henry, hangs heavy over this family. But Jesse Plemons wants something more. and starts a tentative relationship with a widow in the local town played by Kirsten Dunst. And I find it delightful that Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst are a couple, they have two children together, and here they are acting in this film. Even though, apparently, Jesse Plemons' role was originally given to Paul Dano, but he had to pull out due to scheduling conflict. So, who knows, maybe Kirsten Dunst said, um, hey, my fiancé might want this work but anyway jesse plemons and kirsten dunst form this relationship and gradually it forms strong enough that they get married and kirsten dunst moves into this remote montana ranch with her teenage son played by cody smith mcphee a rather odd and isolated young man who is training to be a doctor just like his deceased father. So in the holidays and whenever possible, Cody Smith-McPhee spends time in this ranch and a strange connection, a strange bond forms between Benedict Cumberbatch and this teenage boy Cody Smith-McPhee, much to the horror of Kirsten Dunst, who has been treated with such cruelty and indifference by benedict cumberbatch she is starting to completely unravel so in this uncomfortable psychologically complex situation what will be the consequences of the harsh relationship between benedict cumberbatch and kirsten dunst and the laird relationship between Benedict Cumberbatch and the teenage Cody Smith-McPhee. What will be the outcome? This really is an interesting film. 
I mean, I went into this knowing that it was, you know, the front runner in several Oscar categories. I mean, at time of recording, according to Gold Derby, it's favourite to win Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Supporting Actress for Kirsten Dunst, and Best Supporting Actor for Cody Smith McPhee. So that's not nothing. And I went into this film knowing all that, and I was duly impressed. The sweeping landscapes of New Zealand pretending to be Montana are outstanding. I mean, the cinematography, the framing, the psychological intensity of everything. I mean, this is one of those films where very little is outright stated, but we can observe what is going on. I mean, the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch is a little bit too close to his brother, or or at least needs his brother close to him. The pull that this dead ranch hand Bronco Henry has over these brothers, the influence that is clearly still felt long after Bronco Henry's death, the cruelty with which Benedict Cumberbatch treats Kirsten Dunst and the ignorance with which Jesse Plemons plays this whole thing out. I mean, he doesn't particularly notice and doesn't particularly mind that his wife seems to be deeply, deeply unhappy in this ranch because of the treatment she is getting from his brother. But Jesse Plemons has or seems to have political ambitions and is more often than not, off in the city trying to pursue those political ends. So his wife is left at home with her cruel brother-in-law and occasionally in the school holidays having her son around as well. So how does that woman deal with it? I mean, and in 1920s in the middle of nowhere in Montana, she turns to drink. And the way that plays out and the way that Cody Smith McPhee observes this and observes the relationship between Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst and Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst. I mean, he seems pretty okay with you know his, his new stepfather. I mean, there's even a line of dialogue. I think it might even be the opening line of dialogue in this film, that he's okay with the new man in his mother's life because he wants his mother to be happy. But... Seeing the detachment with which Jesse Plemons treats Kirsten Dunst and the cruelty with which Benedict Cumberbatch treats Kirsten Dunst, you can see that Cody Smith McPhee wants to do something about this. And Cody Smith McPhee is played as a somewhat odd character, an isolated character. You might even say that through modern eyes, you could say he's somewhere on the autistic spectrum. He is very, very concerned with his studies. He is determined that he will be a doctor just like his dead father, who not insignificantly committed suicide in the middle of nowhere in Montana. But he is an odd boy. He has several self-soothing techniques which repeat throughout the course of the film. He comforts himself by running his thumb along a comb, and the sound of that riffle as he runs his thumb over the comb is a constant soundtrack a lot of the time that Cody Smith-McPhee is on 
screen to the extent that you know whilst drunk Kirsten Dunst says, oh, can you please stop doing that? It's really annoying. At one point, he even kind of invents the hula hoop with a barrel hoop. Uses that action like a hula hoop. And the hula hoop wasn't invented until 1958. So this is close to 40 years before the hula hoop is invented. Yet he's invented it as a self-soothing technique, as something to, to keep his mind and his body centered he's an odd boy he has calculations he has schemes he has his own ideas and when you start to piece together i mean through little bits of information here and there again this is not a film which lays out any details about what's going on you just have to piece together what's happening. And we have to piece together the actions that Cody Smith McVie takes against Benedict Cumberbatch. You have to piece together the relationship that Benedict Cumberbatch and, to a lesser degree, Jesse Plemons had with this old ranch and Bronco Henry. Nothing is outright stated, but you can put yourself in the position you can start to make connections. And it's quite interesting, quite disturbing stuff. I completely understand why Cody Smith-McVie and Kirsten Dunst are in the, the front runners to win supporting actor and actress. I honestly think that Benedict Cumberbatch should be in the running to be best actor. I mean, the favourite at the moment is Will Smith for King Richard. Uh, a film I am very, very ambivalent about. And personally speaking, right now, I think Benedict Cumberbatch deserves the Best Actor Oscar as well, although obviously I haven't seen all the films in contention. I mean, this very alpha male person who is determined that I'm the centre of attention, I am the one who makes all the decisions, this is my house, this is not Kirsten Dunst's house. I mean, I'm not sure if this was just the way things were done at the time or if this is a specific character trait, but it becomes very, very noticeable that Benedict Cumberbatch never takes his spurs off. Whenever he walks, he has that little tiny jingle of his spurs as he is walking around. I mean, and that's just another way he dominates the room. He dominates the environment. And it... it becomes really, really interesting. I mean, and this whole film becomes really, really interesting. I mean, yeah, the the writing and direction of Jane Campion is excellent. Thomasin McKenzie is in this film in a very, very small role. I, mean, I guess it's a film shot in New Zealand and she's a Kiwi actress, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, an unnecessarily big name for such a small role. I mean, maybe there was some stuff that got cut out, but yeah. The cast is excellent. The acting from Cody Smith-McPhee, from Benedict Cumberbatch, from Kirsten Dunst, and from Jesse Plemons is very good. I mean, the psychological density, the psychological depth of this is fascinating to see. And yeah, all around, this turns into an excellent film. Right now, I think it will be my choice for Best Picture, but again, I have not seen many of the other contenders, particularly Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, which seems to be the other 
front runner. But yeah, I can completely understand why this is in the running to be the best picture winner this year or next year. And yeah, I think sign me up because as far as I'm concerned, The Power of the Dog on Netflix is a yay. It is a powerful prestige picture and I do think it's worth watching. So the other Netflix films I watched over this festive period were some festive rom-coms with the Christmas dinner happily cooking in the kitchen. What better way to kill time than watching some cheesy Christmas rom-coms on Netflix? And the first one I watched on Christmas Day was the queer Christmas rom-com that Netflix released, Single All The Way which stars Michael Urey as a social media marketing guy in Los Angeles who finally thinks that his perpetually single status is changing and he has plans to bring his new boyfriend home for the holidays to his tiny home in snowbound New Hampshire. But just before setting off, he realises he has been lied to and, desperate, he asks his best friend slash roommate for nine years, Philemon Chambers, please, please, please come home with me to New Hampshire and pretend that after all these years we finally crossed that line from roommate to boyfriend. Reluctantly, Philemon Chambers agrees to this, but before this deception can be revealed to Michael Urie's parents, played by Kathy Najimy and Barry Bostwick, how awesome is that pairing as parents? But just before this deception can be revealed, Kathy Najimy says, by the way, I want to set you up on a blind date with my brand new gym instructor, Luke McFarlane, who is single and gay and in this small New Hampshire town. So, to make his mother happy and to not lie to him, saying that, you know, I finally crossed the line with my roommate, Michael Yuri agrees to go on this date with Luke McFarlane, and it actually goes surprisingly well. So, will Michael Yuri end up with this new blind date that his mother has set him up with? Or will he actually realise that Philemon Chambers has had a crush on him all these years and he kind of has a crush on Philemon Chambers as well? And when Michael Urey and Philemon Chambers need to spend time together doing a Christmas pageant with Michael Urey's aunt, played by Jennifer Coolidge, <laughs> the cast for this is surprisingly good. But Jennifer Coolidge, this failed Broadway star, is making the most of her flamboyant energy in small-town New Hampshire and insists that this gay couple helps her out with the Christmas pageant. So, of course sparks aren't going to fly between these long-term best friends and roommates as they're forced to spend time together over the Christmas holidays working with Jennifer Coolidge, this flamboyant former 
Broadway star or self-proclaimed Broadway star. It's a basic setup and you know exactly what's going to happen. And that's kind of what she wants. I mean, this is the type of film. I mean, I, I can basically say the same thing for all three of these films I'm just about to talk about. It's a formula and it works. It's just the question of how well it works, how well the craft has been put into it. And I have to say that for Single All The Way, and actually for all of all three of these films, the craft has been put in. It ticks the right boxes, it hits the right buttons, and it has some nice little details. I mean, the fact that in common with a lot of these Hallmark-esque Christmas movies, it's actually the dream of the big city boy to move back home to this small town in New Hampshire, and right from the start of the film, I mean, he has this dream. Because while his day job is marketing through social media, I mean, he's currently working on a shaving cream ad. And actually, the shaving cream ad that they came up with is not actually that bad an idea. I mean, just putting on shaving cream on your face and and putting a Santa hat on, that's actually not a bad idea for a social media shaving cream ad. But his real passion is houseplants. So his dream has always been to run a little plant shop. And it doesn't hurt that if he did move back to this small town in New Hampshire, I mean, his two sisters are right down the street, his parents are there, and his nieces and nephews. And I do love the fact that all of his family are entirely supportive of having Michael Urie as you know the homosexual in the room. To the extent that his teenage nieces, who are in the sort of 15 to 18 range, I mean, it's never exactly said which, but they're in that age range and they spend the entire movie trying to push Mark Yuri and Philemon Chambers together. And everybody is supportive. I mean, uh, uh, perhaps even going a little too supportive. I mean, Kathleen and Jimmy is always talking about you know how she's read in this book you know how to be a parent to a gay child and you know these words of wisdom from this book i mean she's trying but yeah maybe trying a little too hard but i like the fact that everybody is totally supportive and open and wants michael yuri to end up with philemon chambers even though luke mcfarlane is a hunk but eventually even luke mcfarlane says look you clearly end up with Philemon Chambers. I'm just going to take myself out of the running. I mean, he is a Baxter. I mean, the, the romantic comedy trope of the Baxter, the alternative to the couple we want to happen, who is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with him. He's just not the one. And Luke McFarlane is the Baxter in this situation, and he takes himself out of the running because he knows, he realizes. And I do. Love the way that everybody in this film is so supportive, which is unlikely to happen in the centre of this type of movie, which is the Hallmark Channel. The very, very conservative, very family values Hallmark Channel. I believe that over recent years, the Hallmark Channel has started to put some queer content in their family-friendly Christmas movies. But 
I do believe there is a direct dig at the Hallmark Channel from this Netflix-produced queer Christmas romantic comedy. There is a subplot where Kathy Najimy buys a fake Christmas tree, a fake white Christmas tree with these gigantic stars on it. And the entire family, particularly Michael Yuri, you know, the person who is obsessed with houseplants, says, no, we can't possibly have this fake plastic white tree. We need to go and get a real one. Now, so far, I mean, that's not anything particularly special. But as far as I am aware, I mean, I've heard through secondary sources, I mean, some of the podcasts I listen to do watch these Hallmark Christmas movies. And to the best of my knowledge, a lot of them, if not all of them, are sponsored on the Hallmark Channel by a company which produces fake Christmas trees. So in my mind, I think this little subplot, this little moment in this queer Netflix Christmas rom-com is a direct dig at the Hallmark Channel. I mean, you have heteronormative couples and fake Christmas trees. We have real Christmas trees and queer couples. I can't help thinking that that is a direct dig at the Hallmark Channel, this subplot around this fake plastic white tree. And there's so much queer energy in this film. I mean, there's a line, go on, don your gay apparel, which... Is such an obvious line, I can't believe I didn't see it coming. And then, of course, there's Jennifer Coolidge. Jennifer Coolidge has so much queer energy coming into this film. There's even a line of dialogue, for some reason the gays are obsessed with me, that Jennifer Coolidge says, and her niece, who's sitting on the couch with her in the background, is desperately trying not to corpse in the background. Jennifer Coolidge is this flamboyant, failed Broadway singer who was you know, the understudy to the understudy in Wicked years ago and has been living off that for decades and now just does this little Christmas pageant every year in this small New Hampshire town and expects the teenagers including her own nieces to be you know perfect actors and just takes over the roles when they're not good enough i mean she is camp as hell and she just saunters into the room at one point and the first thing that philemon chambers does is mouth i love her to his roommate slash best friend marco yuri and we kind of love her. I mean, Jennifer Coolidge is such an awesome, funny person. And she's great in this. And really is the cherry on top of an already pretty damn good cake. I mean, this would already be a yay. This would already be a recommendation. I mean, for what it is, for a cheesy Christmas rom-com, single all the way works. But the fact that Jennifer Coolidge has this massive camp energy at the centre of it just makes it all the better and makes it all the more watchable. I mean, I really, really liked it. And for me, Single All The Way is an incredibly high mare. 
I can't in good conscience give this type of film a yay, comparing it to The Power of the Dog, which is going to probably end up as an Oscar winner. I can't put it in the same category as that, but for what it is, it's exactly what you want and it's very well done. So yeah, Single All The Way is a very high meh. So on Boxing Day, the cheesy Christmas rom-com that passed a pleasant afternoon was Love Hard. A cheesy Christmas rom-com with 20-something protagonists, as is usually the case in these kind of situations. This one's actually directed by a guy called Hernan Jimenez, who in the past has been submitted to the Oscars by Costa Rica, his native country, and apparently he's also a stand-up in his native Costa Rica as well. And now he's making cheesy Christmas rom-coms in America. I mean, such is the way for independent international directors, I guess. But anyway, if he's getting paid, good luck to him, I say. So yes, this is directed by somebody who's been submitted to the Oscars. But Love Hard stars Nina Dobrev as a journalist who has made her career writing under a pseudonym about all the bad dates she's been on in the dating app culture. But she's kind of getting tired of this and actually wants something real, something genuine. And it looks like she might actually have found it when her pushy best friend, Rebecca Starb, increases her radius for her dating app to cover the entire country, this Los Angeles-based journalist starts an online connection, an online conversation with a man played by Darren Barnett, a hot, hunky outdoorsman, into climbing and everything, but they have really great conversations. But unfortunately, he lives in Lake Placid, New York. So deciding to hell with it, I'm going to take a risk. Nina Dobrev hops on a plane and heads all the way across the country to Lake Placid, New York, just before Christmas and is then horrified to discover that the person she has actually been talking to is not the hot, hunky Darren Barnett. Instead, it is the nerdy, glasses-wearing Asian-American guy, Jimmy O. Yang. Horrified that she's been catfished, she storms out and is only persuaded back after a mishap with some kiwi fruit, which she is allergic to. Jimmy O. Yang helps her out, arguably saves her life from this severe allergic reaction, and persuades Nina Dobrev, look, I actually kind of know the guy whose photo I used, Darren Barnett, and I will set you up with Darren Barnett if you stay with me and pretend that we are actually a couple for the Christmas period. So, wanting to hook up with the hunky Darren Barnett, Nina Dobrev agrees with this and agrees to spend time with Jimmy O. Yang and his family. 
but will she end up with the hunky outdoorsman Darren Barnett or the nerdy poet, arguably, in Jimmy O. Yang? What do you think? And, yeah, I mean, this is a film about catfishing. I mean, it's a common enough idea, a common enough trope that when I say the word catfish, you kind of know exactly what I mean. I mean, it's weird how quickly that's taken over the public consciousness since that documentary must be, what, 10 years ago? Maybe even 15 years ago now. But yeah, the idea of being catfished and you know trying to work out who I actually want to be with. I mean, is it the person who looks great, but do we actually have anything in common? Or the person I've been having these really long, really intense conversations with, but he looks like Jimmy O. Yang. I mean, this is a, a, a trope that has gone all the way back to Cyrano de Bergerac. I mean, and there's actually a new film version, a musical version of Cyrano coming out not too far away, starring Peter Dinklage, which I'm actually weirdly curious about because the music was done by The National, the rock band The National, which I'm interested in. But yeah, that's for a couple of weeks down the line. But yeah. This idea of who am I falling in love with, what the person who looks like that, or the person who says these things, it's a story as old as time, or at least the story as old as Cyrano de Bergerac. And yeah, I mean, it's done pretty well. I, I think this particular version maybe gets a little bit too contrived. There's misunderstandings and deceptions i mean it's clear right from the start that nina dobrev and this hunky guy darren barnett are not suited to each other darren barnett's favorite book is walden by thoreau and nina dobrev hates thoreau but she pretends to like it for the sake of this date darren barnett's family own a steakhouse and he has shot some of the deers on the wall and nina dobrev's a vegetarian and yet goes on a date in this steakhouse it's actually left a little bit ambiguous as to whether the vegetarian Nina Dobrev actually eats meat for the sake of this date but it's certainly a possibility in this idea and and basically it's presenting this idea that to some degree everybody is catfishing everybody you're pretending to be somebody you are not you are pretending to like things you don't like for the sake of a connection, for the sake of a date. And I think they push this a little bit too far. I mean, there's a situation which develops where a proposal gets put into the mix, even though you know the, these people have only met face-to-face a couple of days ago. It, it's, it goes too far too quickly. But in general, this is the way the pattern goes. It is the situation i was talking about earlier i mean it ticks all the boxes it has that checklist mentality of the things you expect to happen in this type of romantic comedy you know the obstacles which are put in the way the misunderstandings which are put in the way and you know finally realizing oh actually maybe i do love this person and it all being okay in the end there are nice little details i mean the title of this film love hard comes from the fact that there is a continuing argument that goes on 
over the course of the film as to what is the best holiday movie ever. In Ina Dobrev's position, it is Die Hard. In Jimmy O. Yang's perspective, and Jimmy O. Yang's family's perspective, it is Love Actually. So that's kind of what the film is going towards. I mean, and that's a nice little cute moment, and the ending, you know, the big dramatic gesture at the end rips off the famous big dramatic gesture from Love Actually. I mean, how many times has that scene been ripped off recently? I mean, I've seen it in the film in Boxing Day recently, and there's even an advert for Foot Asylum, you know, the shoe company, over the Christmas period, which rips off that Love Actually scene as well. So yeah, I mean, I think that has rapidly become part of the the Christmas rom-com canon. But anyway, you know, the debate between Love Actually and Die Hard as to what is the best Christmas movie ever that's actually kind of cute, kind of funny. And it does show the different perspectives that you can have and the compromises that you can make and in certain places are unwilling to make. There's also really weird situations. I mean, the fact this takes place in Lake Placid, New York. The only thing that I know about Lake Placid is it hosted the 1980 Winter Olympics. So at one point, one of the things that this outdoorsman Darren Barnett does on his date is, hey, let's go down the bobsled run that is here in Lake Placid. Something which is not appreciated by Nina Dobrev because she is not an outdoors person at all and has to get incredibly stoned to even get in the bobsled. I mean, uh, there's early in the film, one of the first things that happens is the layabout person who works at Lake Placid Airport hands her a joint and I was thinking okay that's the first time I've seen a Chekhov's joint but the joint is used so she is you know calm enough to actually get in this bobsled and I was thinking do they actually let members of the public go down the bobsled run really and I've looked it up and apparently they do (laughs) I mean, not in the situation that is in this film where it's just Darren Barnett and Nina Dobrev in a bobsled. Apparently, they go down in a four-man bobsled and they've got a driver and a brakeman and there's two members of the public in the middle. And you can actually do that if you go to Lake Placid, New York. And Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah, it's one of the many things which shows that Nina Dobrev and Darren Barnett are just not suited to each other. And Jimmy O. Yang and Nina Dobrev are. but. You know, Jimmy O. Yang has the you know, the geeky features. I mean, he wears glasses. It's becoming a trope. Well, it's always been a trope. But you know, the idea that just because you are not, you know, doesn't have the chiselled jaw and the abs and all that kind of stuff, that you're not worth anything in Hollywood. But I mean, Jimmy O. Yang's perfectly acceptable. I mean, he seems perfectly attractive to me as a cis straight man but for Nina Dobrev you know this person who's made a career out of all these bad dates I mean essentially she has the same job as Sarah Jessica Parker in Sex and the City and one of the first things we hear in the voiceover at the beginning of this thing is that old Plato idea of soulmates you know finding your other half there are two people split in two and you need to find them to re reconnect it. That was also in the film from last year, the half of it, which was excellent. 
But I mean, the idea that you need a man to be complained to me, I think that's a little bit of an old fashioned idea. I mean, particularly when you are name checking Plato. But in the modern idea that a woman needs a man to be complete, is that acceptable? I mean, I suppose it's acceptable in a romantic comedy because that's kind of the point, that we want people to end up together. But still, it is going a little bit hard in that direction. But there is some stuff from the new generation. At one point, Jimmy O. Yang on the fly rewrites the lyrics to Baby It's Cold Outside to make it a little less rapey than it actually is. Although, through modern eyes with no background context, it does sound a little rapey, but the intention of the songwriter at the time was being much more flirty, saying the things that should be said, but wanting to stay. But anyway, through modern eyes, that song is a little rapey, and Jimmy O'Rang rewrites it on the fly, which is quite a nice little scene. But yeah, it's got nice little moments. It, it, it does tick most of the boxes. I think it goes a little bit too far and a little bit too contrived in certain places. Of the three films I saw on this cheesy anthology Christmas rom-com period, I think this is the worst. But I still think it's worth watching. Again, on its own terms as a cheesy Christmas rom-com, Love Hard functions perfectly well. And it's cute. I do kind of believe the relationship between Nina Dobrev and Jimmy O. Yang. They do work well together. The chemistry is right. But again, not as strong chemistry as Michael Yeri and Philemon Chambers in the first one, or Brooke Shields and Kerry Owens, which I'll be talking about in a minute. But it's still good enough. And I think Love Hard is good enough. It is a solid mare. It is worth watching on its own terms, and it does function. So that's basically all you could ask for for this type of movie. And the final film I watched on Boxing Day in this cheesy Christmas rom-com marathon was A Castle for Christmas. And this is directed by actually a somewhat impressive director. This is directed by Mary Lambert, who back in the day directed a lot of music videos, including lots of videos for Madonna, including the Like a Prayer video. She also directed the first adaptation of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery back in 1989. But over recent years, as is so often the case with ageing directors, particularly ageing female directors, she has worked a lot on television, with episodes of The Blacklist, Arrow, The Goldbergs, things like that. She's also directed a sci-fi original movie, Mega Python vs. Gatoroid. The woman who directed the Like a Prayer video for Madonna, Material Girl, La Isla Bonita, Controlled by Janet Jackson, would I Lie to You by The Eurythmics. I mean, some really, really top quality music videos in the late 80s, early 90s. And Pet Cemetery, which was uh, a decent enough horror movie. And then she went on to direct Mega Python vs. Gatoroid. And this cheesy Christmas rom-com. I mean, I guess she's still getting paid and fair play to her. But yeah, 
Mary Lambert has had an odd career. But in any case, she has directed this new movie, A Castle for Christmas, in which Brooke Shields, who I haven't seen in quite some time, plays a very successful novelist who has written a series of chick lit books which are enormously popular, but the latest one has not gone down well with her adoring public. In this latest book, she has killed off the male protagonist of this romantic series of books, which has absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with the fact that her husband has dumped her and is run off with a much younger woman. And that is not connected with the fact that she killed off her male protagonist in the slightest, but still. Her public now hate her. And in order to get out of the media storm, particularly when she has a meltdown on the Drew Barrymore show, and I'm pretty sure that's the actual set of the Drew Barrymore show. But anyway, Drew Barrymore playing herself is kind of cool in this. But Brooke Shields needs to hide out for a while. So she decides she wants to head off to Scotland, where her father grew up. Her father, or rather her grandfather, worked at the estate of a particular count at Dun Dunbar Castle, and really they could have come up with a better name than that. But anyway, she wants to go home to Dun Dunbar Castle, where her father came from. Even though she herself was born and raised in Queens, New York, her father came from this Scottish castle. So she decides she wants to go there, and whilst there she meets a surly handyman who grudgingly gives her the tour of this castle. But when Brooke Shields heads off somewhere she shouldn't because her father left graffiti inside this big baronial pile in his youth, they have an argument and she storms off, but it's only later that she realises that this handyman was actually Carrie Elwes, the Duke of Dunbar, and they've clearly got off on the wrong foot. But this giant castle is hemorrhaging money, and Carrie Elwes desperately needs to find some finance. So he reluctantly agrees to sell his castle to Brooke Shields, this rich American author, on the understanding that for the 90 days escrow before the sale is finalised, an escrow which will run out, of course, on Christmas Day, Brooke Shields lives in this castle with Kerry Elwes. And Kerry Elwes has a cunning plan. He will make life so unpleasant for this dilettante American author that she decides to give up the whole thing and go back to America, leaving her non-refundable deposit behind. And with this non-refundable deposit, the castle can keep going for a couple of months and in spring we can come up with something new. So the idea is that Carrie Elwes wants her money but doesn't necessarily want to sell her the castle but they are going to be spending 90 days together when Brooke Shields is supposedly working on her new book, 
And of course, romantic sparks won't start flying between these two attractive people in their 50s. I mean, again, this is the formula. And again, it's done very, very well in this scenario. A Castle for Christmas knows all the things it's doing. It, it kind of runs on rails, you know, exactly the things which are going to happen, you know, exactly the misunderstandings which will occur. I do like the fact that Brooke Shields has a daughter in this film who is in college and in most of these cheesy Christmas rom-coms would be the protagonist, but here she's a secondary character. I do find the chemistry between the two leads believable and the misunderstandings and, you know, Carrie Elwes trying his best or gently trying to push Brooke Shields out the door, you know, putting her in a room with no heating and no dresser and nothing like that. But, you know, she eventually works her magic on this lonely, decent aristocrat. I mean, the problem with A Castle of Christmas, and it's not a deal breaker, it's not a massive problem, is there is a heavy, heavy dose of Scottish exoticism here. This is a film where basically everybody wears tartan, where the first time that Brooke Shields lands in Edinburgh, the accent of the taxi driver is so thick that there's actually subtitles on screen. It is, it, I suppose it's kind of cute. It, I, it did kind of bother me that there is a taxi taken from Edinburgh to the Highlands, and it specifically said at one point that it is Aberdeenshire, so that's a hell of a drive in a taxi. But you know, I guess in America's point of view, Scotland's just another small country, uh, and we have you know the side characters. I mean, there's a knitting circle in the local pub that Brooke Shields is initially staying out of me and basically it falls into the archetypes of maiden mother and crone you know there's an old lady you know uh, a woman in her late 30s who runs the pub and uh, a girl who works at the local bakery and i thought her baking talents were going to become much more of a part of this story but you know it's the maiden mother crone archetypes plus one of the other well the other person who is in this knitting circle is a man who is mourning the death of his husband, which I think is interesting. And again, showing the inclusivity, which is becoming a much more common part of this kind of cheesy movie. So basically what we have here is maiden, mother, crone, and queer, is how I ended up describing them. But yeah, I mean, the knitting circle, making comments off at the sidelines, I mean, clearly seeing that, oh, this American author and our beloved local Duke actually like each other. Maybe we should try and encourage them together. And they do. I mean, and there's this big Christmas party. I mean, the grief-stricken Duke whose wife left him for a richer aristocrat in the past and he hasn't really got over it and there hasn't been joy or happiness in this castle for so many years. But 
oh, you used to have parties on Christmas Eve, let's do it again this year. And everybody's dancing Scottish dances and everybody's wearing tartan. And it's a lot of Scottish exoticism, which as a native British person, I mean, I'm not Scottish myself, but at a remove, I got a tiny bit offended for Scotland and the way it is portrayed in this film. But it's still a cute romance. It's still a cute couple. I do genuinely believe these two people connect. I like the fact that even Brooke Shields' daughter starts nudging her mother in that direction. I mean, that's who you're staying with? I mean, over the shoulder in a Zoom call or a Skype call. It's like, uh, all right, bye-bye. Go and go and have some time with, with the Duke. I mean, it, it's cute. And I do buy it, I do believe it, even if it is a little bit too tartan heavy. But nevertheless, even with that tiny flaw, that tiny caveat, A Castle for Christmas is charming as hell. And that's all you want. I mean, as I said, it follows the formula and that's all you want. And it does work. So again, on Netflix, A Castle for Christmas is a pretty high meh. Coming attractions. In theory, the next standard episode of this podcast shouldn't be too far ahead in the future because at time of recording, I'm only a couple of days away from New Year's Day where another round of cinema releases will be happening. On New Year's Day, we have released Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, Licorice Pizza, about growing up in Hollywood in the 1970s. We have the quirky British biopic, The Electrical Life of Thomas Wayne, about an Edwardian illustrator who had severe mental health issues. And we also have The Tragedy of Macbeth, the first time that Joel Cohen has taken soul charge of a project without his brother Ethan but it is an adaptation of the classic Shakespeare tragedy with Joel Cohen directing his wife Frances McDormand as Lady Macbeth and Denzel Washington as Macbeth. Judging by the trailer it's got that narrow 4x3 ratio and some stark black and white cinematography. It looks pretty cool actually. It's being released primarily onto Apple Plus TV, but is getting a limited cinematic release, which I should be able to watch, assuming that the Watershed Cinema does reopen as it's scheduled to do. But anyway, the plan is to watch The Tragedy of Macbeth alongside Licorice Pizza and The Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne when they are all released on New Year's Day. Thankfully, there's nothing really major being released onto Netflix, apart from the film directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, The Lost Daughter, which I've talked about in previous episodes. Psychological thriller starring Olivia Colman, which looks very, very cool and is another heavyweight Oscar contender. And I don't have a great deal that I'm desperate to catch up on by the end of the year on streaming platforms because I am now overdue to start seriously considering my 
end of year shows, my top 10 films of the year, my top 10 Netflix films of the year, and my personal raw footage awards. But I do have some Oscar Beatty stuff to catch up on, like the two music documentaries which were released earlier in the year onto Apple Plus TV, The Velvet Underground, directed by Todd Haynes, alongside the Billie Eilish documentary, The World's a Little Blurry. We've already got the American indie film Young Hearts, which actually got released onto Sky Cinema very quickly, so I have the ability to watch that for free, so that will almost certainly be in the next standard episode. And the other streaming films which I'm most eager to get to before I seriously consider my award shows is Daniel Brawl directing himself in Next Door the German film, and I'm also really intrigued by the British indie film Lapwing, set in the reign of Queen Mary, where a group of gypsies try to leave the country because they have been expelled from the country by Queen Mary, but in the period before they can actually embark on a ship, they get involved in the lives of a religious community on the coast. So that looks like it's pretty cool. On the Netflix side of things, we have the mildly Oscar-baity, or at least Oscar-potential, films in The Starling, Bruised, Tick Tick Boom, and Don't Look Up, as well as the Italian film, which has made it onto the 15-film long list for international feature Oscar, The Hand of God, which I'm really not looking forward to, but that's what I'm going to be watching the next time I head over to Bristol on the bus, probably to see, or hopefully to see, the tragedy of Macbeth. I might also get to the Italian true crime film Yara as well, if I have the time. But yeah, lots of stuff to get to. Really is about time I started properly doing my end of year deliberations. But hopefully there will be a standard episode coming relatively quickly with those three cinematic films, probably the indie film Young Hearts as well, and hopefully some of those documentaries as well. So plenty of stuff to get to. But in the meantime, I will remind you that there were two yays in this particular episode. And yays for very, very different reasons. The big, dumb balletically violent film The King's Man works on its own terms it is excessive it is over the top but I thought it was a lot of fun and it's surprisingly historically accurate and The Power of the Dog is a genuine prestige piece I think it's a genuine contender to be best picture this year and it deserves to be so from the limited options I've seen so far The acting all round is excellent. The writing and directing of Jane Campion is excellent. And all around, The Power of the Dog is just a really fine piece of cinema. It's just a shame that it's ended up on Netflix. But regardless, that is the modern world in which we live in. And that's just what we're going to have to deal with. So the two yays in this episode are The King's Man and The Power of the Dog. And with that said... This has been Yane Omer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. 
I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!